in uh, October of 2020, Al Jazeera published an article on a, on a locust invasion in Ethiopia. They began this way. Mother of ten, Marima Wadisha, screamed. She threw rocks and in desperation even fired bullets at the locusts that descended on her sorghum fields. But the insect swarms were so relentless that her entire crop, her family's only source of income, was destroyed. They never left for a week, she said. We are left with an empty harvest. How can I feed my children like this? Not only in modern-day Ethiopia, but multiple times in ancient Israel, locusts were known for destroying land and leaving the people in despair. In one instance, the prophet Joel depicts locusts as a merciless army. Not only would they turn gardens into wastelands, they caused the people's gladness to dry up. Locusts bring ruin on land, and they also cause misery in people. In Revelation 9, we encounter another locust-like swarm, but they are worse. They represent demons, demons that God unleashes to ruin those devoted to their idols. Look at it with me, starting in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, 
And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. When we started the seven trumpets last week, I I told you to keep in mind several things, and I want to review those just briefly. One is that these trumpets serve as warnings before the final day of God's wrath. We need to remember Jericho. Seven priests with seven trumpets marched around the city seven days, but at the seventh trumpet, God destroyed the city of Jericho. Well, in Revelation, we get seven priest-like angels, and they blow seven trumpets. The meaning is that the rebellious city of man will soon crumble before the kingdom of God. And that means as we approach the trumpets, we need to check ourselves. Do we belong to the city of God? Or do we belong to the city of man? Another layer we considered. These trumpets resemble the plagues on Egypt. The trumpets are worse, but their similarities help us understand why they come and what they're about. So, like the plagues on Egypt, these trumpets come in response to the cries of God's people for deliverance. Like the plagues on Egypt... God reserves these trumpets for the enemies of God's people. And like the plagues on Egypt, these trumpets reveal God executing judgment on the people's false gods. Not just on the people, but on the people's false gods. They prove that God alone is glorious. 
With trumpets five and six, though, another layer enters the picture here. And that layer is the prophet Joel. Like Revelation, Joel's is a prophecy. And Joel's prophecy warns of God's coming judgment. You even have a sound of a trumpet uh, alarm in the face of that judgment. And Joel is also summoning the people to, to repentance. But Joel builds his prophecy around this, this awful locust plague. God sent locusts against his people for their rebellion. It was a sign that God's curse was upon them. And that real locust plague then becomes a sign for what the final day of the Lord would be like. The final day of the Lord would swarm humanity like a vast army that leaves everything ruined and everyone despairing. Trumpets 5 and 6 here are telling a similar story. They too are signs that the final day of the Lord is drawing near. The trumpets too leave people ruined and despairing. The trumpets too are signs that God's curse rests on the rebellious. The difference is that now we see demons unleashed on the rebellious. Revelation takes Joel's prophecy to the the next stage in redemptive history. If locust armies don't wake you up, if human armies don't wake you up, then maybe demon armies will wake you up. Now, holding those things in mind will help you understand kind of the bigger picture with these trumpets, and it will also help you understand some of the imagery that John uses. That doesn't mean Revelation 9 is now a piece of cake. All right? It's not. It's hard to understand. But I think if we focus on what's clear here, we will know how to obey its message. So I want to discuss what's clear in three parts. Part one, the Lord orchestrates these judgments. The Lord orchestrates these judgments. We need to keep in mind the the sovereign lamb of chapter five. Okay? His reign initiates everything. Each series of seven from Uh, So all 21 judgments that start with chapter 6 and end in chapter 16, they come because Jesus takes the throne and Jesus is bringing history to its climax. Also, we learn from chapter 20, verse 1 and verse 7, that God controls what goes into the abyss and what comes out of the abyss or this bottomless pit that we've seen here. Notice, too, in chapter 9, the passive verbs. Verse 1, He was given the key. Verse 3, They were given power. Often in Revelation, that's John's way of saying that nothing moves unless God gives permission. We also see the Lord limiting the damage. Verse 5. The locusts torment, but they cannot kill. Verse 18. 
the cavalry is allowed to kill, but only a third. These sinister creatures, in other words, are not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Jesus controls them. Jesus gives them the ability to do what they are doing. Part two. The Lord's judgment involves demonic assault. The Lord's judgment involves demonic assault. In verse one, the fallen star represents an angelic being. Sometimes stars represent good angels. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 20. Later, in chapter 12, verse 4, we will see that stars can represent fallen angels. In either case here, the Lord gives this particular angel authority to to open the shaft to the bottomless pit. Other translations use uh, the abyss. So bottomless pit, the abyss, same thing. We need to remember here what the demons said to Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verse 31. They begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss. In chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 3, the Lord will cast Satan into the abyss for a time. The abyss is invisible to us, but it's part of the created order. It is not hell, which is the final judgment. Rather, it's a temporary holding place for hostile demonic powers. But here, we see that they're released. In verse 2, the opening of the shaft comes with these these ominous signs of smoke darkening the sun and the air. Locust plagues were known for darkening the sky. Their numbers became so dense that they cast a smoke-like shadow over the land of Israel. Well, like a plague of locusts, these demonic powers spread darkness. They are also dominant. In Joel chapter 2, verse 4, the locusts are like war horses. The same, we see the same here, but worse. Verse 7 says they're like horses prepared for battle. Verse 9 says they wear breastplates like breastplates of iron. They sound like many chariots, it says. In the ancient world, when you combine iron with chariots, you come to dominate your opponent. And then by adding crowns of gold in verse 7, we learn of their relentless desire to dominate and control people, much like the person uh, that rode out with the crown in chapter 6, verse 2. They're also deceptive. In verse 7, the ESV says their faces were like human faces. But the NASB brings out a a disturbing contrast. It reads, their faces were like the faces of men, and yet it goes on to say they had hair like the hair of women. And so there is this unnatural, deceptive mixture of male and female. They are also destructive. It says their teeth are like lion's teeth. 
Also an image from Joel chapter 1, verse 6. Lions tear their prey to pieces. In this image, we're reminded of Satan. Peter says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. These demons have the same goal, and that shouldn't surprise us once we learn the name of their leader, verse 11. Their king is called Abaddon in Hebrew. In Greek, he's called Apollyon, and both of those names mean destroyer. Likely, we're looking at Satan here. He leads a host of demonic powers who are dark, who are dominant, who are deceptive, and who are destructive. And nevertheless, they do not march. They do not move without the Lord's permission. In this case, the Lord gives them power to drive people to despair. In verses 3, and then in verse 5, and then again in verse 10, the Lord gives these locusts power to torment people. They're allotted five months, which may average the lifespan of a locust horde. If so, this demonic horde has a lifespan. They, they won't be allowed to do this forever, but for a time, God is permitting them here to torment. And that torment is then likened to the powerful sting of a scorpion. Scorpions, uh, if you kind of just do a, plug it into to, to your online program, whatever you use, scorpions throughout the Bible. You don't get a a whole lot of places, but when you do find them, scorpions were dangerous creatures when Israel passed through the wilderness. Evil kings use scorpions to make people obey them, 1 Kings chapter 12. Jesus compares demonic powers to scorpions In Luke chapter 11, verse 12, Paul also uses the image of a scorpion sting when he says, the sting of death is sin. So death stings because we're guilty. Perhaps these demons torment people with painful guilt to make them obey. Physical pain may also be involved, but the psychological terror is obvious here. Verse 6 describes it as seeking death and yet not finding it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So demonic assault comes with darkness. It seeks to dominate, deceive, and destroy, and the primary goal is driving to despair. That's the picture that the fifth trumpet is painting. The sixth trumpet pictures another vast army, only this time it's a lion and serpent-like cavalry. Verse 14 reveals four angels bound at the river Euphrates, and since these angels are bound, much like Satan will later be bound... In chapter 20, verse 1, it seems we're looking at four hostile, demonic angels. Nevertheless, the Lord still controls them. He grants permission. Notice, too, how they're standing by the river Euphrates. 
In the Old Testament, the Euphrates forms the, the northeast side of the promised land. And whenever you have enemies attack in Israel, they come from the Euphrates. So foreign enemies come from the Euphrates. And something else to note in these stories, like with Assyria and with Babylon, God is the one that sent Assyria on His people for their idolatry. God is the one who sent Babylon across from the Euphrates on His people for their idolatry. And the same is happening here in Revelation 9. Here we are seeing another army of foreign powers. And we also see God releasing them to attack idolaters. Their number is great in verse 16, 200 million. Their purpose is to kill a third of mankind, verse 15 and 18. But the way they kill is really peculiar here. Fire, smoke, and sulfur come out of their mouths, verse 17 says. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. What other creature breathes fire, smoke, and sulfur? Some of our kids might be able to answer this question. A dragon. A dragon, a serpent like the Leviathan in Job chapter 40. In verse 19, their tails, notice... It says their tails are like serpents. They are like serpents for a reason. They resemble their leader, that ancient serpent of old. And so this army is attacking humanity with the lies of Satan. There are dragon-like things coming out of their mouths. And it leads people to death. The dragon's lies always kill. That's why people murder each other in verse 21. They're worshiping Satan and his demons. They're listening to his lies. That's the picture painted by the sixth trumpet. Part three, the Lord targets idolaters in these judgments. The Lord targets idolaters in these judgments. Look back at chapter 8, verse 13. This is kind of the intro into the the last of the three trumpets. It says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, if you know where the woes appear throughout the Old Testament, a woe meant that you were under the curse of God. Only notice here 
who that applies to. He calls them those who dwell on the earth. Now, that doesn't mean just anybody and everybody. Throughout Revelation, this is a, uh, a phrase that, that's used to refer to God's enemies. Never once does it apply to the people of God because the people of God are in the city of God. The people of God are reigning with God in heaven. They are the heavenly people, but the earth dwellers, the earth dwellers, these are God's enemies. In chapter 6, verse 10, they murder Christians. In chapter 13, verse 8, they worship the beast. In chapter 17, verse 2, they get drunk with sexual immorality. Woe to them, verse 13 says. Then look at verse 4 of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 4, the locusts were told not to harm it, the grass of the earth, or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Notice that. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, we learned about this seal a while back in chapter 7. And then we looked at chapter 14, verse 1, to figure out what this seal is, and it is the name of the Lamb. It is the name of the Lamb written on your forehead, which is a spiritual mark showing that you belong to God's priesthood. In chapter 7, verse 4, God's servant have this seal. Those redeemed by the blood of Jesus have this seal. Idolaters, however, do not have this seal. They bear a different mark in Revelation, and it is the mark of the beast. The Lord targets them in these judgments. And then finally, look at chapter 9, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The Lord sends demonic horrors on those who don't belong to heaven, on those who don't bear the seal of God. And how do you know they don't bear the seal of God? It is then seen in them not repenting from their idolatry. So the message of the, five, uh, the, message of the fifth and sixth trumpets is this. If you do not repent from idolatry and belong to the Lamb, the Lord will hand you over to demonic horrors. If you do not repent from idolatry and belong to the Lamb, the Lord will hand you over to demonic horrors. Look at verse 20 again. Did you notice how worshiping demons stands alongside worshiping idols? John does that because in and behind idolatry is the work of demons. And if you don't know that, you need to wake up to that. Consider what Paul said in chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These, you have these Christians, and they're arrogant, and 
They are eating food offered to idols in the temple despite their brothers. And Paul tells them to stop it and flee the idolatry of these pagan temples. And then he adds this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So he says, you can't come in here on Sunday morning and eat this bread and drink this wine and then go throughout the week participating in the pagan rituals. The two don't go together. So he warns them that to do so is to participate in the table of demons. To participate in idolatry is to give yourself to demons. Unless you repent, God will unleash demonic horrors on you. And that is not an injustice, by the way. God is giving idolaters what they want. They want their idols. They want to keep worshiping demons. So He hands them over to them. What we should see in this passage is that it is a mercy that God restrains demonic activity at all. It is a mercy that God restrains demonic activity at all. Please see this. The very things these idolaters worship end up destroying them. It may feel good. It may satisfy you in all kinds of ways here on earth. But demons don't care about you. And your idolatry will destroy you. Demons lure people with idols only to drive to despair and then leave you dead. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I hope it's really clear. Repent from all forms of idolatry. I know I said it last week. It's the same message. We're in the trumpets, and that's the message of the trumpets. Repent from all forms of idolatry. In his book, The Mission of God, Christopher Wright does a survey of the Old Testament and finds several ways that people can manufacture gods uh, or, or, or idols. We make idols from things that entice us. Deuteronomy 4.19 Created things that we see in this world that are, that are greater than us, that are charming to us, right? that, that, that entice us. They, they can entice us to serve them in ways that are reserved for God alone. 
He also says that we can make idols from the things that we fear. Psalm 96 verse 4 speaks of fearing the Lord above all the other gods. And by saying that, Psalm is not telling us that there are other gods out there that actually exist. Rather, we impose godlike qualities on things that we fear such that we end up obeying them instead of the Lord. Wright also observes that we can make idols from things that we trust. Things that we trust. Psalm 115 verse 8 speaks of people becoming like the idols that they trust in. When we trust anything besides the Lord for deliverance and satisfaction and meaning in life, we participate in idolatry. Habakkuk 1.11 shows people making idols from a nation's strength. You hear that, America? People make idols from a nation's strength. Political leaders can become idols. Isaiah 36.6. Or think of the idols of Rome. When John is writing Revelation, they are the same idols of today. People in Ephesus, one of the churches he's writing to, worshipped Artemis. Artemis made them safe. Our culture worships things that make them feel safe. Safety can become a concern that is higher than obedience to Jesus who calls us to take up our cross. The cross is not safe. There was also Aphrodite, goddess of sex. Our culture says that the whole of your self-worth is found in fulfilling your sexual desires. How many companies and sports and teams and music artists sell their product using sex or sexiness or something related to those things? Drive down Highway 30. You'll see it on half the billboards. Plutus was the god of wealth. Think of the great control that money has on people. Ben talked about mammon. right? Mammon the other day from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Dionysius, goddess of wine and ecstasy. We see this expressed in the party life. Heracles, god of strength and sport. Our culture marvels over washboard abs and ripped physiques. Idolatry is all around us. It pervades everything in our culture. But Revelation 9 adds this to the picture. These demonic horrors await those who give themselves to the idols. They are dark, They are dominant. They are deceptive. They are destructive. And they will drive you to despair. And so the message of Revelation is come away from them. Think about what entices you. Think about what you fear the most. What are you trusting to find escape or joy or sustenance? 
We can't be like the church in Pergamum or the church in Thyatira. If if you remember those letters at the beginning of Revelation, they tolerated idolatry and sexual immorality. Jesus warned his, His church because He knows the horrors of idolatry. He speaks to us in love to get away from those idols. He knows what Apollyon is like. Satan means to destroy you, so turn from all forms of idolatry. Listen to God's message in the trumpets. Don't be like Pharaoh when he responded to the locust plague by hardening his heart. Turn away from the idols now before the demons dominate you. Second, realize that what you worship drives how you act. What you worship drives how you act. Notice the parallel statements, verse 20 and 21. They did not repent of the works of their hands, and that's referring to the idols that they're crafting. They did not repent of the works of their hands, verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. He could have gone on with a number of other vices, um, which we'll find elsewhere in Revelation, but here they are. They did not repent of their idolatry. They did not repent of their murder, sorceries, sexual immorality, thefts. What we're seeing in this parallel structure is that false worship leads to false ethics. False worship leads to false ethics. Greg Beale has a great book on this, published in 2008, called We Become What We Worship. If you're interested in kind of a survey of the, what the Bible says about idolatry. False worship leads to false ethics. I'm sure many of you know Roe versus Wade hit the news again this week. At a basic level... Abortion is a worship problem. When people do not worship God, who created people in His image, it leads to treating others however they please to satisfy what they do worship. Whether that's money or convenience. In Psalm 106, you can read of Israel... Psalm 106, verses 36 and 37. You can read of Israel serving the idols of the nations, and behind those idols, Psalm 106 says, are demons, just like Revelation is saying. Do you know what their love for those idols led them to do in Psalm 106? Sacrifice their children. sacrifice their sons and daughters. False worship drives abortion. It also drives human trafficking. It also drives racism. False worship also drives sinful anger. Whether that's the worship of self or the worship of whatever comfort that person just interrupted. Gluttony is a worship problem. The Bible says that we must glorify God in our bodies, but instead we obey fleshly appetites and look to food for escape. The same can happen with drinking. 
Pornography is a worship problem. I have seen brothers delivered from this, and one of the brothers that I saw delivered from this told me this on the phone one time. I, look at, I looked at porn because I wanted a world where I am king, where I am worshipped, and where I control things and I get what I want. That is a worship problem. If you want to act righteously, then you must worship truly. You must have a heart that's set on worshiping the true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. It would be a good time to consider the Lord's Prayer again and some of the things Ben laid out there for us a few weeks ago, especially the portion on Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Right? Let Your name be hallowed, Lord, in my heart. Let it be hallowed. We need Jesus to give us hearts that treat God's name as holy, that worship in spirit and truth. True ethics will follow true worship. Now, how does that true worship happen? It happens through the Gospel. It happens through the Gospel. That's our final takeaway. And I want to end... I want to end here. Rest in God's grace in the Lamb to save you. Rest in God's grace in the Lamb to save you. What a picture we have of human depravity in verses 20 and 21. Look at how enslaved the human heart can become. Six trumpet judgments pass, and yet they still don't repent and give God glory. The only person who can free you from that kind of slavery is Jesus the Lamb. Many of us here can recall how enslaved to idols we once were. Maybe we don't know the full extent of these judgments, but we we know something of what this demonic darkness is like. And yet, we find ourselves ransomed and freed and brought into a kingdom of light and life. How did that happen? Our rescue was not owing to anything in us. It was all grace. It was all Jesus. He is the Lamb who loved us and freed us from our sins by His blood. Chapter 1, verse 5. He snapped the power of Satan over our lives. Satan uses three primary weapons to control people. Lies. Guilt. And fear. He uses lies. John 8.44 He is a liar and the father of lies. He lies to keep us fumbling around in the darkness. He lies to blind us to what true glory is like. He uses guilt. Colossians 2.14 pictures demonic rulers holding over us a certificate of debt that we owe because of sin. Joshua 
the priest in Zechariah 3, Satan accusing him because he's covered, he's guilty, and the nation is guilty. Satan also uses fear. Hebrews 2.14 speaks of Satan using fear to enslave people. They fear death. and They don't want to die. And so they keep giving in to Satan's ways. They don't want to die. They don't want to kill him. They don't want him to kill them. How can that change for anybody? The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus enters the darkness and He speaks truth to us. He exposes the lies of Satan and He reveals what true glory is like. When we see Him, we see the Father as He is. Jesus then gives His life on the cross to cancel our debt. He takes away our guilt totally. He removes that other weapon Satan has to oppress us and control us. And get this, when He does this, when He takes away our guilt, He removes that scorpion sting of death such that we can now say in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? Jesus also entered death to overcome it by resurrection. And in that victory, He destroys the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 So we no longer bow to demons. We bow to the Lamb who sets us free. Ephesians 2 We no longer follow the prince of the power of the air. God has made us alive and He has seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. And where is Jesus seated? far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. We do not have to follow the enemy anymore when he lures us with the idols of this world. We reign with Jesus. Listen to the way God worked in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. It says, The Gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And what was the result of the people in Thessalonica embracing the Gospel? Chapter 1, verse 5. I mean, chapter 1, verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what the Gospel does. That's what the Gospel does in your life. It sets you free from the idols so that you can serve the living and the true God. So Jesus is your only escape from idolatry and from the evil one. Jesus is the only one who can seal you with His blood and protect you from these demonic horrors. So rest in Jesus today. Turn to Jesus today. Even if you're a Christian following Him for years, keep turning to Jesus today. Remember Him now as we come to the table. Remember His grace. Remember His redemption as you eat and drink together. But first, let's sing together. Gary's going to come lead us in a song.